tremendous appreciation for the ministry that each of you has given to them because they have grown in grace in your midst. I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. <clears throat> The Apostle Paul is ending his letter to a church where he spent around 18 months. There have been a variety of misunderstandings that still persisted in the church. There have been great blessing, great spiritual gifts. There's been wonderful manifestation and a positive use of these spiritual gifts, but there's also been much abuse. There's been great celebration of the grace of God that has rescued them from this pagan society and yet there's been an abuse of the grace of God. There's been a great celebration in the refocus of their, of their worship and their understanding of how it is that they are to approach God and yet even in this they have abused the various ordinances and the worship of God in these ordinances. This is something that shows us that when we are converted though we have Christ and we have all things and we have his his truth, there's still indwelling sin, there's still many habits we have, there's still many commitments of our mind that we have that uh, do not, are not consistent with the gospel. So we need to be taught, we need to continually put our minds before the word of God, we need to submit ourselves to the truth of God so that we will be continually transformed. And so Paul is, is writing this letter to a help advance that transformation and to help them examine themselves as to whether or not they have actually embraced the grace of God uh, in its truth upon the first time that they heard him preach and they professed their faith. And he comes to the end of this letter and as was uh, his basic uh, practice in order to make sure that the churches knew that this letter was from the Apostle Paul uh, he closed with something that he himself wrote. Sometimes people wrote letters and put the name of the Apostle Paul on them and they were not from him at all and he had to tell them, don't be frightened by another letter you have had that purported to be from me. And so he would close his letters with his own writing. In fact, at the end of the book of Galatians, he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you. And he has about seven or eight verses that he writes at the end of the book of, of Galatians in his own handwriting. And now he does this here at the end of 1 Corinthians because he wants to uh, emphasize the core of the matter. What is it that is really at stake in all the issues that he's talked about? What is at stake in the issues of doctrine and the issues of practice and the issues of morality and the issues of holiness and the issues of love? What is at stake in this. And so Paul summarizes this in a very succinct matter here at the end. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 16, verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now as Paul takes his pen in hand to write these final words, he emphasizes those things that were foremost in his mind. He, he 
summarizes and distills into just a few words perhaps the most important truths, those things that when you get all of the gospel down into its, uh, the, the most important elements of it, these are the things that matter. First of all, uh, he mentions the highest privilege that anyone can have as well as the most sober duty that is incumbent upon any creature. Love for the Lord. If anyone has no love for the Lord, summarizes all of life into that simple phrase, the danger that we're in if we have no love for the Lord. And then he mentions the most horrendous consequence of failing to do so. Let him be accursed. If a person has no love for the Lord, the certainty will happen that he will be accursed. This is the curse of God himself. It is an eternal curse. It is a curse without any reprieve. It is a curse in which there is no mercy. It is a curse in which there is no end. And so right after he has mentioned this highest of all duties, to love the Lord, he mentions the most horrendous of all consequences of not loving the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he mentions the most important event, the one to which we are all looking, the one that will bring an end to all history. Our Lord, come, Maranatha. So in that one verse, verse 22, he deals with extremes. He deals with absolutes. He deals with the absolute of the necessity of loving the Lord. He deals with the absolute of the curse that is on those who do not do so. And he deals with the absolute of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to put an end to all history. Then in verse 23, he sets forth the only means by which we will actually welcome the one that is our great and noble duty and avoid the one that is the most horrible consequence. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus, we would not love him because it is his grace that inflames our hearts to love him that changes our affections. Without the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ also, we would be certainly cursed. And so this prayer, this benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And then in verse 24, he sets forth the only cord that brings true fellowship. He's mentioned our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he sets forth the reality that we find love for one another. We have fellowship one with another only when we have experienced that love, when we've come to know what love is because of the self-giving love of Christ, because of the sacrificial love of Christ. So he can say, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. It is because Christ Jesus has died. It is because Christ Jesus has been our substitute. It is because Christ Jesus has sent his spirit into our hearts whereby we cry, Abba, Father, that we can look at others and say that in an eternal sense, in a sense in which we have their best interest at heart that wants their well-being in an infinite way, my love be with you all. And this can be true only in its sincerest way when it is in Christ Jesus. And then the utter sincerity of all of these things is indicated in the word, Amen. 
why do we look at this text and affirm that Paul, an apostle, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is right to issue an anathema on other people? How does he have a right to utter those words? How can he say that anyone is going to be under the eternal curse of God? This is perhaps the, the, the center of the passage, that there is a curse that is waiting, and that which keeps us from the curse is loving the Lord Jesus Christ, and that which puts us under the curse is not loving him. That which makes us welcome the coming of Christ so that we enjoy his coming and look forward to his coming is that we love him and know that we will not be under the curse. And that which makes those who do not love him fear his coming is that there is a curse awaiting them. So how does Paul have the right to utter this anathema? Especially for this reason, those who do not love the Lord. Why is it that anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ is under a curse? Now, your pastor is in the land of the Reformation. The land of the Re Reformation uh, recovered the doctrine of justification by faith. And we would affirm with all our soul that no one is saved without faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And those who know what love is would say that no person loves the Lord Jesus Christ in a completely unblemished way. Love is the highest of all virtues. Love is that which can brook no rival in the heart. And yet at the same time, though we are justified by faith, and we can never have a perfectly pure love because love is the fulfillment of the law, how is it that he can say that a person who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ is under a curse. Well, let's look at this for a while. If we come away with some degree of understanding of this, then I think the Lord will have caused us all to grow in grace. We recognize that salvation comes with repentance and faith. There is no salvation without repentance from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is no such thing as repentance from sin apart from a proper understanding and evaluation of the law of God in your New City Catechism that you have. There's a very wonderful statement about why it is that we have the law of God. What does the law of God do for us? The law of God reveals that we are sinners. The law of God reveals that we do not love the Lord. The law of God reveals the ways in which we need to improve in our spirituality and our understanding of holiness. And if we're called upon to repent, we cannot repent unless, first of all, we know what the law of God says. And then, unless we come to see the law of God as that which sets forth his beauty and his holiness and his prerogatives in a way that we cannot understand without it. The Apostle Paul himself said that as much as he had studied the law, he thought that he kept the law, he thought he was blameless according to the law. But when the commandment, thou shalt not covet, came, sin revived and he died. And he saw that he had broken all of the law, that he did not. He was not a repentant person. In the book of Acts, the second chapter, when the people cried out at the preaching of Peter, and they said, what shall we do? The first thing he says, repent. 
when Paul was preaching in Acts 17 and he had finished his message to these Gentiles who were pagans. And he had talked to them about creation. He had talked to them then about uh, Christ who has come. And Christ, he, has, he has verified this by raising Christ from the dead. He says he now commands all men everywhere to repent. And when Jesus and Luke was sending out the disciples, he told them that now repentance and remission of sins will be preached to all nations. We cannot be saved without repentance. But we will not repent as long as we resent the law. We will not repent if we think the law is unjust. We will not repent, repent if we think the law is unnecessarily repressing us. We will not repent if we find things in the law that aggravate us and that, that make us hostile. There has to be a change in our heart where we come to love the law of God and love the lawgiver because how the law expresses itself in setting forth his beauty and his holiness and his attributes and setting us in such a way as we can know him and adore him and be rightly related to him. We will not repent unless we have a proper evaluation of the law of God. We will not have faith without the highest regard and affection for and obedience to the sacrificial death of Christ. We must have faith. Paul told the jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Ephesians talks about our being saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Romans 3, 24 through 26 talks about God having set Christ forth as a propitiation for our sins through faith in his blood that righteousness comes upon all them who believe so salvation comes by repentance on the one hand faith in the other these are two sides of the same coin we do not truly repent unless we at the same time embrace the Lord Jesus Christ we do not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith unless we have also repented so it is a, a repenting believing or believing uh, repentance because it is all bound up in seeing who Jesus Christ is. There's no salvation apart from faith. So we see that repentance and faith as the foundation for what it means to be united with Christ do not come to us apart from a change of mind that reevaluates the law of God and sees it as something that is lovely. Sees it as something that is Though it is against us and though we're under its curse, when we come to love it, we see that it is something that brings us to see God in a clearer and purer way. So if we have no salvation without repentance and faith, and repentance and faith are bound up in learning to love the law of God, how does this relate to loving the Lord? So let's look a little bit more in a detailed way, at this, this one item of there's no repentance apart from a love of the, of the law and a love of the lawgiver. There's no salvation without a love of the law. The psalmist said, Psalm 119, 99, the entire psalm, Psalm 119, is about loving the law, about abiding by the law, about seeing the glory and wonder of the statutes of God and the testimonies of God and the rules of God and the, the law of God. And in verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love thy law. And in Romans 7, as Paul has been brought to the point of conviction by the 
commandment, thou shalt not covet, he then finds that this has brought a transformation in his life and now he finds out that he, he sees that the law is spiritual, the law is just, the law is good. And he, with his mind now, he wants to serve the law of God, but he finds a principle within him that continually hinders him. He confesses that there is something that keeps him from doing what with his mind and his heart he is wanting to do. So it is the law of God that has come and has brought a new love for the spirituality of salvation, the beauty of God, but it is also continuing to reveal the inadequacy that he has, the sin that is embedded deeply within him. And it leads him to that Great and profound exclamation, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says, I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so <clears throat> the law of God has brought about the reality that he's a sinner. It has convicted him of his sin. It has made him love that spirituality, but it has also driven him to see that if there's any moment in which he himself trusts in his own goodness, in which he himself trusts in his righteousness, that he is condemned because there still is this principle within him that keeps him from fulfilling what the law says. And this draws him then to see that it is only in Christ that there is no condemnation. What is the law? Why does the law bring us to such a state of struggle within? Why does the law on the one hand let us see such wonderful purity, such wonderful reality that if we would obey the law, we, will, <clears throat> we would be living in harmony, if there would be no crime, there would be no backbiting, there would be no jealousy, there would be no envy. And on the other hand, we find all of these things still pulsating within our own souls. <clears throat> Well, the law of God is summarized in two great commandments. We know that it is Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, where the, the Sadducees had tested Jesus on the principle of the resurrection, and he had answered them and, and routed them and showed that they knew neither the power of God nor the Scriptures, and the Pharisees were pretty satisfied with that, and so they came to him and thought they had a better question. This is one of the things that they debated quite often is what is the greatest of the commandments? So they ask him that. What is the greatest of the commandments? What is this teacher going to say? How is he going to enter into this debate? And Jesus simply said, well, the greatest commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love to God, love to neighbor. In fact, Jesus is so insisted upon this that he said that if a person loves father or mother or children or lands or anything more than me, he's not worthy of me. And he told people to take up their cross and follow him. He had the audacity to say that you should forsake everything, everything in this earth, everything in this world, every natural affection you have if it conflicts with the love of the Lord God as expressed in my own sacrificial love so love to God is that which is primary but then love to man follows upon that we see for example in Romans 13 where the apostle Paul is setting forth 
uh, how the law operates within our day-by-day life. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So we see love to God and love to man summarize these commandments. All the Ten Commandments are bound up in this. Jesus himself says it. Paul says it. James refers to the royal commandment in James 2. If you are giving some sort of deference to the rich who come into your congregation because you're really fulfilling the royal law, you shall love your neighbors yourself, and that's a good thing. But if you're showing partiality, if you actually are showing covetousness rather than love for your neighbor by that, then you prove yourself to be a lawbreaker. There's this operation of the law. So, so how does this relate then, since the law is summarized in love to God and love to man, how does this relate to the fact that if we do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, we are <clears throat> anathema? Well, first of all, there was no other person who had perfect love for God and perfect love for man than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who shows us what love for the Father is. He came in obedience to the Father. He sacrificed his life because the Father told him to lay down his life. As the Father had commanded him, he laid down his life. He loved the Father. He never murmured against the Father. The final analysis of his prayers, he said, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He sowed such love for his father that he was able even to endure the wrath of his father for the sake of accomplishing the eternal covenant of redemption. He loved the father so much that he endured that eternal displeasure that God has with sin as he allowed himself to be made a curse for us. No one ever loved God more than Jesus the Christ did. No one ever saw the beauty in the self sacrificial call of the law of God more than Jesus Christ did. If we want to have a model of what it means to love God, if we want to see someone who actually fulfilled the first table of the commandments and loving God, then we look to Jesus Christ. And if we know that there is such a thing as love to God like that and, and that the law requires love to God, we must love Jesus Christ because he is the only one who has ever loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. If we want to look to someone who loved man, <clears throat> who fulfilled the second table of the commandment, then we must look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God with us. He is the one who gave himself for his sins. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, Jesus himself said in John 15, verse 13. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> who though he was in the form of God did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a man and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why? In order to redeem his enemies. 
Because it, <clears throat> it was while we were still enemies. It was because it was while we still were not his friends. It's while we were still dead in trespasses and sin. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know of anyone who has loved man more than the Lord Jesus Christ did, who loved his enemies, who even loved those who were nailing him to the cross, who said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And probably many of those who were actually executing Christ at the time were among those who eventually were saved and redeemed by his blood? Whoever loved man more than the Lord Jesus Christ did. And if we believe that the commandment requires us to love our neighbor as ourself and we see it nowhere around us and any person who is our peer, nowhere in our culture, and yet we see one who did it, one who gave himself for his friends and for his enemies and endured the wrath of God for us. That is one who loves his neighbor as himself. How can we help but love this one who loved man in such a way? How can we help but love this one who loved God in such a way? Ah, oh, but more than that, <clears throat> more than his love for God and more than his love for man, if we look at this single person, if we see him, he himself is God. He himself is man. He is God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He was the eternal word who created the world and the word was made flesh and, and dwelt among us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the one who holds all things together. He is the radiance of his glory. He is the one for whom and by whom and through whom all things were created. He is the one in whom all things will be consummated. He is God. He is the one that we will see in his glory and that end and we will fall down and worship him. He is the one before whom the doubting apostle Thomas fell and said, My Lord and my God. He is God but not just in an exalted sense, not just in the sense of being above us, but he is God and the one who came down and took our flesh upon himself. He is the one who walked with us. He is the one that showed his power over nature when he told the wind to be still. He showed his power over disease when he healed all of those who came to him. Countless, countless numbers of those that he healed simply by his power. He's the one who cast out demons. He is the one who said he forgave sins and even his peers recognized who can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus demonstrated he had divine power and could forgive sins. He walked among us, this God. Who could not, who could obey the commandment at all? Who could value the commandment to love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and not love the Lord Jesus Christ who is God and God in the flesh among us? We have no faith. If we do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no belief in him. If we do not find in our hearts a going out to Christ because of his, the beauty of his person and the nobility of his sacrifice and the infinite nature of his own love for the Father and his own power and his own glory. He is man. <clears throat> not only can you not love 
God if you do not love Jesus. You cannot love man if you do not love Jesus. Because he was man. He was made flesh. He is the man, Christ Jesus. He took upon himself all of our nature with the exception of sin. He did not have indwelling sin or original corruption, but he was our flesh, our nature. He lived among us. He was the perfect man. He was made like his brethren in all things. In fact, he had to be made like his brethren in all things in order that he might redeem them. He took up on himself our burden. He took up on himself our life. When people wanted to follow him, he says, the son of man, as he called himself, has nowhere to lay his head. He lived in a humble existence, living with us, teaching us through the disciples and through the apostles, becoming like us in order that he might legitimately take our sin, bear our sin. If he was not like us, he could not bear our sin. The mystery of the incarnation. In this one person, there's God and man. And so all the commandments are bound up in him. If you cannot love Jesus, you cannot love man. You have a hostility to man. If you cannot love Jesus, then you can't love any person because he is the highest of all humans. He was in our nature. Do not love Jesus, therefore you still hate the law of God and you're still under a curse because love to God and love to man is bound up in this reality that you see the glory of Christ and embrace him and love him. He is the truest and best of men. <clears throat> so we have expanded the idea that there's no repentance apart from the love of the law and the lawgiver, loving God and Loving man is bound up in loving Christ. So we can have no repentance unless we love the Lord. But we can have no faith without the highest regard and affection for the obedience and sacrificial death of Christ. So let's expand that point a bit. <clears throat> faith is a love for and submission to the sacrificial obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is something that, that undergirds every aspect, every grace of the Christian life is founded upon the reality of love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, in that great chapter of love, just three chapters before our text, as he begins to <clears throat> talk about how useless everything is unless it is done out of a deep affection for God, he comes to the point in verse 6 where he says, <clears throat> after he's talked about the way it relates to, makes us relate to others. We do not insist on our own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Then he begins to talk about the way this uh, love relates to God in verse 6. He says, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, so our patience with others, he says, our not being irritable, our not being resentful toward others does not mean that we have dropped any understanding of truth. It does not mean that we have lost our ability to discern, to discern right and wrong. No, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. The truth that God has revealed, the truth that he has given, the truth of his law. That's what it rejoices in. 
<clears throat> and so love bears all things. That is, love recognizes that in this fallen world, there are providences that are designed to sanctify us, and we live with gratitude for those providences. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Does this mean that we believe lies, that we believe everything that anyone says, no matter whether it has a semblance of truth? No. It means that every word of God, everything that he has revealed to us, we believe. We have committed ourselves solely to the truthfulness of God and to his revelation. There's nothing that is offensive about scripture to us. There's nothing that we reject in scripture. We believe all the things that he has revealed. That governs our lives. So love is the foundation of faith in the complete word of God. It is love that is the foundation of believing all things. When Christ is preached to us and love has been generated in our hearts by the Spirit of God, we love the truth of Christ that is preached to us. When sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit and the necessity of it is preached to us out of the Scripture, we love that truth because it comes from the Word of God and love believes all things. When the necessity of restoration with those against whom an offense has been committed is preached to us and we see its biblical foundation. We love that truth because it restores our lives. It comes from the word of God and love believes all things. It says <clears throat> love hopes all things. Now this again is not just saying <clears throat> we look at people and we see their potential and we just... We have all these kind of hopes for them that they're going to be the best person ever and they're going to be the best this and that other. And if we love them, we'll just hope all things for them. No, that's not what it's talking about. That's unrealistic. That's not true. That's not what Scripture says about any of us. Hope is a very real thing that comes to us when it promises us that there's going to be glory when Christ comes again. He that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he himself is pure. And the hope we have is that when we see him, we will be like him. So every aspect of hope that it gives us, everything that it sets forth for the future, for the glory of Christ and for our conformity to Christ, all the scripture says about that, we embrace in our heart, we, we, we press it into our mind and to our conscience. We want that. We want to be free of all the things that displease God. We look forward to that time when we see Christ in his glory, when we ourselves are conformed to his image. Love hopes all things. Every word of hope that comes to us from scripture, love hopes it. Love embraces it. So love is the foundation of what it means to believe. This was <clears throat> it's fundamental, therefore, when we look at what the Scripture says about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the different aspects of it. Faith, therefore, believes what Scripture says about that. Faith embraces it. Jesus said that he wanted, in John 17, he talked about that the, his love for the Father and the Father's love for his people would be manifest <clears throat> in the reality when he gave his life and they became one as a result of his sacrificial death. That would be a manifestation of the love of the Father. 
His perfect love for the Father was manifest in this. If we have faith in Christ and faith in his death, we'll recognize that in his dying, he is dying in such a way as will show the glory of the Father. The Father loved the Son. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And he loved the Son and saw his perfection in such a way that he received his perfection, he received his obedience so that it would be a sufficient atonement for all of those who would believe in him. Also, his sacrificial death was not only a manifestation of his perfect love for the Father, but his sacrificial death was a manifestation of his perfect love for us. In Ephesians, in chapter 1, Verse 4, it says, In love he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. First John 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, but the world does not know us. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then John goes on to say, And herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the one who takes the just wrath of God for us so that our sin can be forgiven. So faith, therefore, is founded upon love. Faith is founded upon the reality that one so loved us that he gave his life for us, one so loved the Father that he honored the Father by his death. And when we embrace the sacrificial love of Christ, we are embracing the fact that without that sacrificial love, we could not be saved. We were under condemnation. He became a curse for us. We embrace the reality that we were under a curse and he took the curse. We embrace the reality that we're already under condemnation. He that does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. When we believe in Christ, we are affirming all that the Bible says about us in our state of corruption, in our state of condemnation, in our state of rebellion. We do not seek to excuse ourselves in any way. We would not come to Christ and believe in him unless we believed all that the Bible said about us and we saw the necessity of that and we see Christ as our only hope and so we come to him because there has been a change in our hearts and affection for all of these things of God and we go to Christ and believe in him because we know that that is our only hope. So anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, the text says, let him be anathema. One who cannot love the Lord has no grasp of love for he does not see the only pure manifestation of love that the world has ever seen. He does not embrace it as something that is necessary for his own salvation. And so therefore, when the Apostle Paul says, if anyone love not the Lord, let him be anathema, he is basing it upon everything that Jesus Christ is, all the implications 
of the life of Christ and the person of Christ and the glory of Christ and the obedience of Christ but what it means to love God and to love man. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Paul issued an anathema also in Galatians 1 when he talked about those who preach another gospel than that which I preached. He said, if anyone preach another gospel than that which I preached, let him be anathema, even though he were an angel from heaven. Or even if I preach another gospel than the one which I have already preached to you, let him be anathema. Because a destruction of the gospel is a violation of all of these realities about what it means to love God, what it means to love the law, what it means to see Christ as our only hope. Preaching any other gospel destroys the entire fabric of revealed truth in the Bible. And so Paul says in Galatians 1, let them be anathema. A failure to love the Lord in the hearing of the gospel brings a peculiar aggravation of, of condemnation Jesus, in speaking to the cities of Tyre and Sidon, or Bethsaida and Chorazin, who had seen his works and had heard him preach, and he said, Woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin, for if the works had been done in you, which uh, have been done, uh, if the works which are done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. He says, If they had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Bethsaida and Chorazin. It would be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Tyre, uh, uh, for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. So there's an aggravated condemnation on those who have heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have seen it, and yet they have not loved the Lord. They have not placed their faith in him. So with this terrible specter of condemnation looming before us, how is it that Paul can now say, <clears throat> Lord, come? It's going to be a terrible day for some. It's going to be horrendous. And the book of Revelation pictures those who have lived blithely in this life and have taken no care when they see the lamb in his wrath, they're going to call for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the lamb. Those things that we use that do not want to happen, those things that we fear, earthquakes and volcanoes and fires and anything that might destroy us, we fear these. But when we see the wrath of the lamb, we will cry for earthquakes. We will cry for things to Hide us. We'll cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us to hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. How can, how can Paul wish for that to come? And so many people are unprepared. The Apostle Peter says the same thing. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? Hastening. That's what Paul's saying. Come, Lord Jesus. Hastening. Well, why does he do that? Just quickly in closing. 
Paul wanted to hasten the day when the Lord would reveal his glory. 2 Thessalonians 1 says that when the Lord appears in his glory in blazing fire, he said that he will be marveled at among all who have believed. Even those who love him, those who trust in him, those who expect his glory to be magnificent, when he appears, we will, we will marvel. It will be far beyond anything that we can ever imagine. And Paul wanted all the believers to marvel at the glory of Christ. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Paul wanted to hasten the day when the Lord would put his enemies under his feet. Psalm 2.12 talks about that. Admonishes the nations and the rulers of the earth to kiss the sun. That is, love the sun. Kiss the sun. Lest his wrath flare up and you be consumed in a moment. Hebrews 1. <clears throat> he talks about that because of his righteousness, all things have been placed under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about everything now being placed under the feet of Christ. Ephesians 1 says he's been raised and seated at the right hand of God with all of his enemies under his feet. David, in some of those typological psalms, rejoices that all of his enemies are placed under his feet. Paul looked forward to that. Paul looked forward to the time when all of those who opposed the Lord Jesus Christ, who indicated their continuing hate of the gospel, their continuing hate of moral purity, their hate of God, when that which they invite upon themselves, because, as he says in 2 Thessalonians, their refusal to love the truth, when they will be under the feet of Christ. He wanted to hasten that day. Then he wanted to hasten the day when the Lord would reign forever and ever. We've sung about that today. Really, really was blessed by the entire worship experience, the joyful sobriety of it, the scripture, the hymns of rejoicing and setting forth the beauties of Christ. And one day there will be a worship time that will never end, that will be more astounding, more exhilarating, that will reach more deeply into our affections than anything we have ever experienced. Here, when the Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> comes. We, had, we catch a glimpse of that in the book of Revelation. When the text says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. His covenant relationship, the certainty of propitiation, the certainty of mercy for those who have believed. But there were also flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Those symbols of curses. So this single event 
Even so, come Lord Jesus. We'll be a manifestation of the greatness of his glory, both in wrath and in mercy. And it seems that those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, while they work and seek to hasten the day of the Lord by working to preach the gospel to all the nations, nevertheless yearn for the time when Christ will come and will reign forever and ever with all of his enemies under his feet and all of his saints praising him and his grace forever. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be anathema. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that we would take your word seriously. We would absorb it into our affections, into our conscience, that we would seek to live out its implications, that we indeed would though we find much that wars within us, that we would find that we have begun to love the Lord Jesus Christ, that that love would be expanded and would begin to consume all of those centers of resistance in our lives so that we indeed would be completely sanctified, continually sanctified, by an understanding of who the Lord Christ is and by desiring to be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. We thank